From 9 News in Denver, Colorado, this is Blame, an ongoing investigation into a mother's death, her husband's secrets, and the lax police work that put Blame squarely on the shoulders of their six-year-old son. Was the shooting of Jill Wells really an accident? Join 9 Wants to Know in our pursuit to discover, is someone else to blame? A gunshot echoes across a windswept prairie. A young mother dead. Knowing everything that we know now. An investigation over before it began. I feel like I failed him too. Got feelings. Oh man, if I just would have known this a long time ago. There was a lot of red flags. And an unanswered question. The preponderance of evidence. I would have done something about this. This really points to a homicide. Was a six-year-old really to blame? One of the hardest parts of this investigation is that there were only three people at the scene the day Jill Wells was shot. One was killed, another was only six years old, and the other was a man displaying some unusual behavior. The question is, was it criminal? To think about that, we're going to try to put ourselves into the minds of those who were charged with investigating this death. Forget the life insurance, the marital problems, the drug use. It's time to focus on the evidence from that day. Evidence that convinced many people that it was fair and just to put the blame on Tanner Wells. To do this, our executive producer Nicole Vapp and producer Anna Houston put me on the hot seat asking questions about what was and wasn't known that day. Would you have been curious enough to ask more questions? Or would you have accepted that Tanner Wells was to blame? The starting point in this case and in every case is to evaluate the evidence as it exists against the statements or the story or the narrative that's told. What is the original version of events told by Mike Wells? They were at a leased ranch in Lincoln County out on the eastern plains of Colorado. Rolling prairie and farmland with some creek beds running through it. It's pretty wide open and reasonably flat and kind of in the middle of nowhere. You can just see for miles. You can see the front range of the Rocky Mountains, which are 75, 80 miles away. I mean, it's just... Just imagine seeing basically to, to, to the horizon. You can see Pikes Peak from there. Yeah, yeah, you can see Pikes the Peak. The same Pikes Peak you can see from Woodland Park. Right. There's not a neighbor in sight of this place that you could run to for help. How do they find this place? Several years earlier, Mike and several of his hunting friends began leasing this property to go out there and hunt. That area has um, waterfowl like ducks and geese and so forth and there are deer and antelope and coyotes and all kinds of, of animals that, uh, that can be hunted. And so they were renting it uh, for use as sort of a, a weekend getaway and a place to go hunting and shooting. So he knows this ranch pretty well. He knows this ranch really well. Now how far away was it from the next house? Miles, many miles. I mean, it's, it's like 20, it's more than 20 miles to the town of Hugo where the sheriff's office is located. And it's uh, several miles from, from the town of Pumpkin Center and town is being generous. I mean, Pumpkin Center is basically an intersection of two state highways with a, uh, a scattered 
few buildings around it and not a stoplight or a stop sign or anything. So is it far enough from another house where people would not hear them target shooting? They might have been able to hear it, but it wouldn't have been anything that would have surprised anybody because lots of people have guns out there and shoot guns out there. Mike Wells's basic version of events is pretty simple. He said that he and Jill and Tanner were firing rifles at paper targets that were stapled to a stack of hay bales about 50 feet away. And that um, Tanner, who was you know, almost seven years old, wanted to try out Mike's much larger gun, that he fired a shot from it, that he stood up and tried to cock it again, and that he accidentally fired the gun and it hit Jill in the head and killed her. So the question is, what, what is the evidence that exists? So in this case, we traveled out to Lincoln County mm -hmm. and we um, asked for access to their entire file in this case. And they pulled down this a white cardboard box that had Joe Wells' name written on it. So when they bring this box out, what were you thinking? You know, I was really, I mean, I was just really curious what's going to be in there. Does that box represent all the evidence that Lincoln County has in this case? Yes, this was sort of the sum total of Lincoln County's investigative file. Are most deaths like this one banker's box? I would say no. One box of stuff does not seem like a lot in a shooting death. We know that there were basically two investigations. The one day investigation when this happened and then the one a few years later when the sister started asking questions. So how much of what is in there is from the original day and how much of it was stuff that came out later? The stuff from the original investigation was a very small part of what was in that box. You had some newspaper clippings about the shooting. You had some loose negatives and pictures from the crime scene and pictures of the guns. You had the two-page sheriff's report. You had about three or four pages of notes and documents filled out by the coroner, copy of the death certificate, a couple of faxes from an insurance company in 2001 that was asking questions, a life insurance company. And you had a page of handwritten notes from Lincoln County Under Sheriff Alan Yowell, literally one notebook paper. So 15 or 20 sheets of paper and a few dozen photographs and newspaper clippings, and that was about it. Going through this evidence, did it support Mike Wells' version of events from that day? It certainly supports some parts of it. Mike and Tanner and Jill were there. There were targets stapled up to the hay bales. Jill was laying on a mattress. There were multiple 22 caliber rifles there. And we, we know all this from the photographs that were taken. But they were taken a while after the shooting, correct? Well, we don't know when they were taken because there apparently was no log kept. These photographs do have timestamps on them. It's anybody's guess as to whether the clock in the camera was accurate. We've got a lot of evidence that proves the version of events. Are there any inconsistencies that we've figured out so far? Yeah, there are some inconsistencies. When Mike Wells called 911, one of the questions the dispatcher asked him was whether Jill was still alive. And he told her, I don't know, I haven't checked on her. I just grabbed Tanner and went in the house and called you. Is, is she still alive, sir? I don't know, I just grabbed my son and ran in the house. So that's what he told the 911 dispatcher. But you said that the report was different. What does the report say? So I'll just read right from the report. Michael Wells said Tanner dropped the lever action 22 rifle on the ground after it fired. Michael picked up Tanner and took him inside the house and then returned to assist Jill. 
Michael stated Jill appeared lifeless and he immediately went to the house and called 911. It's, it's not really clear where that version of events came from because even on the 911 call after the dispatcher turned Mike over to the undersheriff who asked him a few questions, he said then that he didn't even know where Jill was shot. Tell me what happened. My wife and my son and I were out target shooting and he turned the gun and it went off and it shot her. I don't even want to get it, but get somebody down here, please. Okay. Which again implies that he hadn't checked on her. So on the 911 calls, he just grabbed Tanner and called 911. But in the report, he grabs Tanner, takes him inside, then goes back out, checks on Jill, then comes back inside and dials 911. Yes. The question is, did he ever actually check on Jill before dialing 911? Right, and it's an inconsistency that you would want to clear up as a detective because, you know, inconsistencies make them suspicious that maybe they're not getting the complete story or maybe they're not getting the truth. And the same guy that was talking to him on the phone is the one who went out to the house. Yes. Under Sheriff Alan Yowell got on to the phone with him during the 911 call and spoke with him asked him what happened, got direct, got the address and directions to get there, and then Under Sheriff Alan Yowell and his father, the Sheriff Leroy Yowell, drove together out to the scene. And is that the same Yowell that wrote the report that has the statement in it? Yes, it's signed by both Leroy Yowell and Alan Yowell. There's no mention in there that there's inconsistencies. There's nothing to indicate when Mike would have told him that he went and checked on Jill first before he called 911. There's no notes of an interview with Mike where he says, uh, yeah, I said, that on the, I said that when I called 911, but I was wrong. I actually checked on her first before I called. The, the very brief audio interview with him doesn't get into that subject. There's just nothing to suggest why it says this in the report and why he, Mike Wells said something different on the 911 call. So the evidence we do have are photographs, a 911 call and the audio recordings from the undersheriff at the scene. And then there's all kinds of evidence that it just doesn't exist. Like what? We don't have an autopsy. Or fingerprints. Or fingerprints. We don't have measurements. Any kind of a scale drawing of the scene that says Jill was here and the target was here and the pickup was here and this gun was here, there, none of that. It doesn't exist. All of these guns would have expended shell casings. There were shell casings on the ground. You can see some of them in the crime scene photographs. None of those were picked up for testing or to check Mike Wells' version of events. The guns weren't fingerprinted. The guns weren't test fired to find out if the gun that he said Tanner fired actually had been fired or had fired the bullet that hit Jill. Of course, they didn't have that bullet because they didn't do an autopsy. There's no videotape from the scene. That was pretty common in those days. Um, to videotape a scene like that. There was no uh, proper interview of Tanner by somebody that specialized in interviewing children, which again, you know, 2001 is 15 years ago, but that's not really the dark ages in that kind of investigation. Forensic interviews of children in cases like this, that was a well-established routine. There were people that are trained and able to do that, and that wasn't done here. All of these things that weren't done can never be replicated because they gave the guns back to Mike the next day. Even if you say that they made a judgment at the scene, you know, they, they concluded, oh, this, this all seems like this is how this happened, and they left the scene, they got another chance to rethink that when the insurance company started asking them. That was another chance for them to say to themselves, for Sheriff Leroy Yowell and his son, the undersheriff, Alan Yowell, to say to themselves, 
Maybe we should take another look at this. Did we miss something here? Should we go back and talk to these people again? Should we have somebody interview Tanner? Should we drive out to Woodland Park and talk to Mike Wells about this? They had a chance to do all that and they didn't do it. The investigation of a violent or unexpected or unattended death carries with it certain protocols, things that investigators routinely do. To get an idea of them, I spoke with Dave Michelson. Michelson is a retired Fort Collins police detective. I first encountered him more than 25 years ago when I was a reporter at the Colorado and in Fort Collins. He could be prickly, especially with his supervisors. But he was well respected for his work as a detective. He cracked some tough cases, including a brutal 1996 assault that left a college student fighting for his life. The three Wyoming men who beat and stomped and stabbed that student and then left him for dead are still in prison. They're there because Michelson was resourceful and relentless. I recently sent copies of the original case file and other documents to Michelson. And then I asked him to talk to me about the investigation. Hello. Dave, it's Kevin. Hi, Kevin. How are you? What's up? I wanted to ask you some questions. What kind of question do you want? I, and I won't preach anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, on a, let's say you've got a call about a death, and it's either violent or it's suspicious or it's just plain old unexplained. What Walk us through what sort of would be the the standard thing that should thing or things that should be done at the scene once officers and detectives arrive the first responder is always a uniform and then it would be his sergeant and they would examine the scene and it's they're called unattended deaths and if there's absolutely nothing suspicious and that that would be their their call that the the detective or the patrol sergeant or the patrol lieutenant and, and the patrolman that went. So there's two policemen that would make the call, whether it was, if there's any suspicious circumstances or anything like that, then they'd call a detective. So, so, so what would be an example of one where it would be a, a, a relatively easy call for the patrol officer who responds to not call a detective? Well, you'd find somebody 85 years old and pet, and no, no sign of struggle, no no bruising on the bodies or something like that, and the wife saying that he had heart condition. And then the patrolman could call his doctor, and a lot of times the doctor, the family physician, would say, I will be glad to, to sign the death certificate that, that he died of that. Yeah, now let's say in the case of a, of a uh, death involving a gunshot. There's no question. If it's a death involving a gunshot, the detectives have to come. Okay. Because no matter no matter who... You know, there's just so much that, that could happen. So you, you can't look at a crime scene and say, okay, this is suicide. You can't do that. Let's talk about the body. What should be done at the scene of a shooting death? What What are the things that are that are basically just routine in terms of what you do with the body and don't do, that sort of thing? Before it's even moved, it, it has to be photographed. I mean, that's the best thing that, I mean, they have to do that. Photograph the, in everything, where everything is laying, and, and try to get as many different avenues of shot and to scale, you know. It, it might be just a, a, a yardstick laying in the room, 
up against the wall or you know to give scale but if you if you didn't have the photographic equipment that could do it properly that's the way the patrolman could do it but photography to scale so that they know what they're dealing with and then you'd photograph the whole scene and then the body itself you know they put them in body bags so you try to make sure everything that came in contact with the body would go into the body bag with it and then when the coroner would transport it for the autopsy then the immediate crime scene with the body you know like maybe the sheep's from the bed or stuff like that would be in the bag and and they can look there you know and hair fuzz fiber and lint that would be in the bag and it, and it can be done so much better in the coroner's office or at, at, at the lab than it can be on scene so you'd make sure that everything that the body could have brought with it or left there is taken with it in the bag and then it's zipped up and it's you know it's just like sealed crime scene sometimes you have a case where uh, medical personnel might try to render aid and decide that they there's nothing they could do and then and then i mean i've i've seen this and then they back off and the detectives begin their work but so in a case like that um maybe you don't get the picture of the body completely undisturbed correct a lot of times you don't. You know, sometimes we've we've transported in into the coroner's office with with all the medical apparatus that they used on them. You know, like the IV they've started. You, you don't want them to take it off. You don't want them to remove it so that it can account for the mark. You know, for the intravenous vena puncture. You know, because if there's always that possibility. You know. It's, of self-induced death could be caused by the same thing, you know, an intravenous drug. But so you you make the medical people leave everything that they've done there, so the coroner knows, and and there's not guessing, you know, which one is an IV puncture by the ambulance, and which one could have been a, an administrated administered drug. See what I'm talking about? Yeah. Everything, whether the remains of medical care or something like ballistics, can be important evidence. Michelson recalled one murder case he worked in the days-long search for bullets in a cornfield. We sifted the dirt in that field for days looking for bullets. I mean, sifted it. And that that could show you how, how much a crime scene outdoors could be scrutinized. They were looking for the bullet because it was through and through, and they wanted to find out the caliber, and they were hoping to find the bullet at the scene. They never did. But the police spent a tremendous amount of time looking for that bullet. Yeah. What about um, ballistics evidence? So um, shell casings, guns, that sort of stuff. Is it ever acceptable to just uh, to not uh, do things like pick up the shell casings and, and, you know, catalog where you got them and then pick them up and preserve them so they, for, for testing purposes? I, I can't imagine why you would do that. So let's talk a little bit about interviewing people. What's the best case scenario? You roll up on a scene, there's been a shooting death, and you've got some people to talk to. As a as a detective, what do you want to do to approach that? Well, if there's only one, you know, the detective can can do that himself. But it's always better to to remove him from that environment as soon as possible, so that the scene is not contaminated. Okay. Let me give you an example of the worst case scenario. 
Jean Benet. Jean Benet's house was a was a crime scene, but they had people there that were in the house that had called the police because Jean Benet had, was missing, and then they the, the officer had those people go throughout the house looking. Okay, absolutely brutal mistake. Everybody should have been removed from the crime scene and it should have been secured. Because, you know, I'm not saying anybody in that house was responsible for the death of Jean Benet, but the mere possibility that one of them could have been, you don't want them going through through the house. You know, I suppose the, the real killer finds something and brings it to you. You know, say, look what I found. Well, now, because he touched it, then what you find that would have been evidence against him now is evidence that he touched it in your presence and you have no proof that he's not the one you know see what i mean you gave him an alibi so you'd want to get the person away from the scene is this and, is that sort of a brick come down to the station and uh, answer a few questions moment as my personal preference that they be removed to an environment that made them uncomfortable you know it could be a, a, a lobby you know away from anybody but some place where they, they and the police are alone. But the best place to have an interview is where it can be documented, you know, video recorded and audio recorded, you know, so that there's no question of what the policeman said, promised her, you know, there's, there's so much misconduct that can happen in an interview room. That's why you always want it recorded. Best evidence is always a recorded. Video evidence is even better. And what about in the case where you need a, to interview a child? Those are tough. I mean, that that takes an expertise, and and the, the department should probably focus on somebody that was good at that. And it's easier to talk to, to children when you're a, a mommy figure. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You know, because the father figure and the mean policeman or even the harsher voice is not going to work on a child as well as as a baby talking mama and that's why i would go to to even even uniform patrolmen without their hat that patrol ladies would be better than a detective in, in plain clothes talking to a child there's a you know a, a detective's got to know his shortcomings and it <laughs> what it, they say you got to know your your environment because baby baby talking is is tough it's very tough and that's why you i prefer a lady to do it and it it takes props and dolls and 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 time because you, you can lead her lead the child down the wrong road and that obviously has to be video recording not just voice but video because the, the kids communicate in so many different ways it's worth the time, though, because they remember. They're unlike old people like myself now, you know, where you go into a room and wonder why you went there. But the kids, they don't have those problems, and they can remember some of the best detail. It's just getting it out of them without yeah. harming them. Yeah. And especially if it's, especially if it's mommy and daddy that did it. So let me um, let me run through some stuff on this case, and um, and some of this is stuff I have learned since I sent you those documents, 
and um, but you do you you have reviewed some of the documents in this case, uh, the ones that I thought would be helpful. But so we have a, a shooting death that's reported. The um, sheriff and the under sheriff respond. They um, they don't photograph the body as it was originally found. They describe in the report finding uh, her with her left finger on the trigger of her rifle and and uh, as though she was still shooting they don't they don't photograph her at that point they photograph her later after they've moved her and moved the gun they don't pick up any shell casings they don't take any measurements they um, don't photograph the overall scene uh, or try to sketch out the pickup was parked here and she was here. Uh, the rifle that the father reported the boy had fired was laying on the ground some number of feet away from where she was found. They don't measure that. Um, they interview the father on tape for about, uh, about 55 seconds. That's what's on tape, on audio tape. And they interview the boy while he's sitting in his father's lap or sitting next to his that father for about... That was the biggest mistake yeah. right there. That was, that was the biggest mistake. I mean, I'm not saying they didn't make the right call. Just how, how can we tell now? But the biggest mistake was interviewing the child with the father. Because on that case, and no matter how you read it, the father is still a suspect. And so the child has to be not with his father. And, and cannot respond to cues from the father. And and then he should get to tell the policeman his side of the story. And then later on, get to tell it again without his father involved. And to look at deviations and stuff like that. But to interview him one time on his father's lap, that that was the error that I saw in the case you sent me. And it was it, that was sad. They had no autopsy done. They had no ballistics testing done. They returned the guns to the father less than 24 hours after the incident. Um, what's your reaction to all that as a as a longtime detective? Yeah, I, I, I can I can I can see that you know first of all she's laying in a prone position and like she's going to shoot her gun and it's that that should be documented. So much. I mean, probably several rolls of film from every angle you could possibly get before she's even touched. And then the measurements of where the, you know, that's what I'm talking about, the, the crime scene to scale. Certainly I've seen a million crime scene photos where there's either a 12-inch or an 18-inch steel ruler or even a yardstick that's just laid down in the next to the footprint or laid down next to, you know, the gun or anything you want to you want to show the size of always photograph it first then add your scale to photograph it again a, a framing square is a wonderful thing to carry in your car and it, and it takes nothing to do it you know just add a little black tape to it and square it to the to the wall in the in the room that you're taking a picture and you're good to go and you know you could add a little black stripes every six inches and it makes it so much better, and you can use that same framing square for most of the pictures you, you take of footprints and where blood spatter is and stuff like that. What's your feeling about the uh, about the thoroughness of the investigation in this case 
where the where the six year old boy is reported to have accidentally shot his mother to death. You know, there are a lot of mistakes made on that. You know, an interview with the child was one, the one that I thought was the most uh, out. You know, that was the most egregious. I would, I don't want to be, but that was a big mistake. The child should have never been interviewed with his father. The gun should have never gone back to the father, and the, there should be. You know, even though you can imagine how many brass was out there if they've been target shooting for much well, very long, but they they still could have run a tape through the array of brass, photographed it, and then gathered them up to make sure that you know which guns were fired and what because there's there was so much evidence there that wasn't they they made the the call right away that it was an accidental shooting and. As they brought their evidence that was for that purpose. I mean, to give the guns back to the father as soon as they did, without knowing even which gun had killed the lady. Everybody that I've that I've uh, shown it to has has been highly critical of all the things that weren't done and um, <clears throat> and quizzical about it. You know, it's about about the fact that you know an autopsy it. it most places I've worked on a case like that is absolutely routine. It's not. It's not even a point of discussion. It's just done. For a bullet hole in the head to be to be taken away and without an autopsy is is absurd. It's unbelievable that it happened. It didn't happen. If you got a bullet hole in the head, there's an autopsy. This is probably already clear, but Dave Michelson doesn't really mince words. So what does he think of the work of Leroy Yowell, the sheriff in charge of the investigation of Jill Wells' death? He blew that one. If nothing else, he did a poor enough job that they left his conduct in question. And there should never be any question of whether the police were right or not. They should have documented and proven what their what they believed was there. It's okay to believe something and and control your investigation in, in the direction of your belief. You know, like, but I always like to believe that, you know, this is a homicide and it was done intentionally. And then I would try to prove that. And if I couldn't, then that's okay. Yeah, well, I've heard a lot of detectives over the years say, we, you, you never go wrong by treating it as a homicide. Never. You, you might end up proving that it was a suicide or an accident. But um, if you conclude it's an accident or a suicide and you don't, go through all the steps you would go through thinking it's a homicide, and then you find out something later on, uh, it's often too late, you know? Yeah, you, can, you can't back up and make it right. Yeah. But I would, always, I would always try the investigation. The crime scene would be to try to put somebody in prison. Yeah. Michelson found one other thing terribly troubling about the decisions made at the scene the day Jill Wells died. It had to do with Tanner and Jacob, and the fact they went home with their father just hours after their mother's violent death. And you know what they didn't do is they didn't exercise their police powers because that child was in danger leaving with the father. And they could have taken the child. I I know you're going to get upset with this, but I probably would have. The child would have gone into foster care because he could have been in, and and he had the other baby brother. And even if nothing else, the the excuse could be the father's despondent, and you don't know what that situation is going to bring in to protect the two children 
they should have been taken from the custody of the father, put in foster care, and the interview made before he got the children back. A lot of times I disagree with a lot of seizures on these babies, you know, the putting them in protection. But not in that case. That child, both the little boys, were in danger. Because if the father did it, then he could, you know, he might not be done with his problems. The sheriff could have taken the child from the father, no question asked. I mean, the father has nothing to say about it because the child was in, could have been in serious danger. It would have made everything that he did much brighter, you know, or more palatable had he taken the child out of the family and then interviewed them through trained personnel. And, but you know, the hindsight's always twenty twenty. Next time on Blame. We're sorry. You have reached a number that has been disconnected. We searched for answers from the men who so quickly accepted Mike Wells' story. I wanted to start by just asking you what you remember about. Not that much, I'll be honest. Without much more than a cursory glance at the crime scene. We did very few autopsies back in those days. There was always red flags. And why more wasn't done to investigate if Tanner Wells was really to blame. I was looking suspicious, you know, I always thought that, you know, that could have been you know, done by somebody, but, you know, how am I supposed to know? Blame is a production of KUSA-TV, Nine News, and Tegna Media. Nicole Vapp is executive producer, Anna Houston is the producer and editor, and I'm investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn. Find photographs, police reports, maps, and other evidence on ninenews.com slash blame. <laughs>